please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge were committed. Was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then Hades, death and Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Well, good morning and welcome to Christ the King Cambridge. My name is Nathan Dix. I'm the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship, or RUF, at Boston University. Um, we're taking a break from our series on Nehemiah, and we are in the book of Revelation. I want to give a little explanation, especially for those of you who are here for the first time, maybe visiting. Uh, this is not a normal Sunday. Uh, in our tradition, we do what's called expository preaching. And uh, like Travis is doing with Nehemiah, you go chapter by chapter, verse by verse uh, through a book. And I'm doing that, but with my students at BU in the book of Revelation. And a long time ago when Travis uh, asked me to, to preach this Sunday, I was like, yeah, I'll just do something in the book of Revelation. That'll be okay. It just so happens, Revelation 20. Uh, a dragon serpent named Satan being defeated, the lake of fire. It's not something we normally talk about. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, this is not something we normally talk about. Uh, maybe the devil showed up on your front porch on Monday. Uh, we think of the devil in those terms. Dragons, that's for HBO. We think of this as in terms of the superstition, in terms of this fantasy world, but we don't think of it as anything close to uh, reality, anything uh, giving us a picture, which Revelation is all about, showing us how things really are through these symbols, through this imagery, through these allusions to Old Testament themes of how things are in the world today, and most importantly, how things will be in the end. We're gonna talk about the death of Satan. Um, I, I wanna first just kind of pose a question uh, to those of us who are like, um, maybe concerned about that we're talking about Satan in the first place. I'm really interested in t as, as to why that makes us uncomfortable, and that'll, kind of show up throughout our, our sermon. Um, Satan's really, in, in, in our minds, kind of dead, right? It's, it's a part of an old traditional way of thinking. Um, before we talk about the death of Satan, I want to talk about the death of God. Uh, in the late 1800s, Nietzsche declared, God is dead, famously. He says, we have killed him. In this claim, he was making a statement about uh, the foundations of belief in God being eroded because of the Enlightenment, because of all the technological progress, of all the discoveries humans had made, we no longer have a foundation for nor need God. And so, because of this, everything in life, especially morality, what we value, the good, the true, and beautiful, has all changed with respect to its reference point. It's all about human flourishing. And so in the wake of this, there were the two world wars. Talk about uh, something that confused this thesis. Uh, we don't have a category for this persistence of evil when humanity has achieved such a peak of progress. A long time later, in 1995, Andrew Delbanco, uh, I don't believe he's a, a Christian, he's a professor at Columbia, he writes a book called The Death of Satan. 
He says this, the repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. We shudder or wince, then we switch the channel. This reality, our ever-increasing awareness of evil in the world, our ability to uh, be immersed in streaming images of this evil, it numbs us, it confuses us. For a time, it might enrage us, but eventually, it exhausts us. We don't know what to do. It's too much, too big, too daunting. Del Banco concludes, um, as one re reviewer put it, that we're poised between belief and irony. We're full of moral concern, yet unable to articulate a coherent basis for morality beyond two things, the cult of victimization and the blamable other. These are two narratives that we have, these, these kind of totalizing narratives that we, we put everything in terms of. The one is the therapeutic narrative, which couches evil in terms of victimhood. And this is uh, purely materialistic. We, we, we think of this in terms of uh, humans are merely atoms and molecules, and if we put those things back in order through education, through therapy, then we will heal, then we will develop and overcome evil. That's this narrative. The other narrative, the blamable other, shows up in the political narrative, where we couch evil in political terms. The other side is influenced by such and such evil, and it puts him on the wrong side of history. And therefore, we blame the other, and we set out to overcome them in the voting booth. That's how we overcome evil. That's how we define evil within that narrative. And you may know of and, and could think of other narratives by which we explain evil in our world today. And if one becomes totalizing, if one is, is the one that we say has the ultimate uh, last word on the existence of evil today, it will fall short. It will fail to adequately account for reality. An example of this um, kind of confounding of, of um, how we think of evil is uh, in Hannibal Lecter, uh, the character in The Silence of the Lambs. He's being interrogated by an FBI agent. Uh, he's a serial killer. He says this in the book, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling, who's the FBI agent. He says, nothing happened to me, I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Friends, if we can't adequately define evil, there is little hope that it can be overcome. The good news is that there is another narrative, there's another story, and it's a better one. It's the Christian story. The good news of Jesus Christ that's told from the beginning to the end of the book, of the Bible. It includes not an explanation of evil per se, 
maybe one that's not satisfying to our sensibilities. It doesn't include a, an excuse for evil, but it says that evil exists within a narrative in which evil is defined by, as we said in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a lack of conformity to the law of a holy God. It's set in personal terms in reference to God. And most importantly, evil is what separates God from his beloved people, his beloved creatures. And because of God's character being the antithesis of evil, and because he made a promise, this compels him to overcome evil because it's the thing that separates us from him. This is the church's narrative, and this is the kind of framework we are going to use to tackle this very difficult chapter in Revelation. I'm going to go at it in three ways. Um, first, the good news that evil is revealed and restrained. Secondly, the good news that evil will be defeated and punished. And thirdly, why this good news should give us hope. First, the good news that evil is revealed and restrained. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. That ancient serpent. Evil has a long history. Uh, three chapters into the Bible, we see a serpent show up. This good creation that God has made is spoiled by the entrance of sin. A serpent deceives Adam and Eve. And they start to believe that God is the one who's deceiving them. They start to question God. And so after they have eaten of this, this tree, of the fruit of the tree, God comes to them and he has some words. He has a curse for the, for the man, for the woman. But to the serpent, he says, he curses him to crawl upon the ground. And he promises to both of them, both Adam and Eve, that one of the offspring of Eve would rise up and crush the serpent. From Eve's lineage comes a nation, Israel. Uh, one of the prophets to God's people, Isaiah, prophesied this in chapter 27 of Isaiah. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So here again is a serpent, but now a dragon. The Hebrew for dragon is Leviathan. So clearly there's more going on here than a mere snake. That wasn't just a, you know, the, 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 the snake. Um, it was something more. Who is the serpent or this dragon? The serpent was the form that Satan took in Eden. In the last days, as we read in Revelation, he's depicted as appearing like a dragon. But who is he? He's the enemy. He's the accuser. He's the adversary. One theologian puts it this way, that he is the supreme revelation of evil. 
I'm going to go back to that question. Why are we talking about Satan? Don't we just need Jesus? Can't we have just the, the, the Gospels and Jesus? Well, it turns out there's truth in the saying, as, as the theologian Herman Bavink says, there's truth in the saying, no devil, no redeemer. If there were no sin, there would be no savior. And the seriousness of sin stands out most vividly in the doctrine of Satan. And friends, if you actually open the Gospels, it's impossible to read them and not see that Satan is a major character rearing his ugly head. Jesus, in fact, it says that he saw uh, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That he had knowledge of Satan prior to Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth. Before his ministry began, he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. The Bible teaches us that Satan was a heavenly creature made by God. He rebelled against God. He fell from heaven. He is a spiritual creature with powers beyond that of humankind. He was created and fell. This was probably before humans were created. And there are a host of spiritual creatures uh, who followed him, who became his subjects, his army of demons. These are the enemies of God. They are naturally sinful. They are not the object of God's love, but of his wrath. So we have evil revealed to us. But this evil is restrained. Back in verse 2, and going on into verse 3, the Satan was bound for a thousand years and he was thrown into the pit and shut, uh, and the pit was shut and it was uh, sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Back to Jesus. He's already talked about this in his Gospels. Uh, his miracles, when he came, a lot of them were casting out demons that were possessing humans. When Jesus spoke of the power that he was giving to his apostles and to the church, he spoke of binding the strong man. Who was the strong man? It was Satan. He's referring to the limiting of Satan's power to prevail against God's people. You see, when Jesus was born, when Jesus came to earth, a new king was in town. When Jesus was resurrected, Satan's greatest tool, his greatest weapon, which was death, was overcome. This bottomless pit is the lair of Satan. It's, it's not a, a literal, geographical, physical location. But it's this place, this spiritual world that surrounds us on which Satan is on a chain. He is not able to do all that he could do. In fact, he can do nothing apart from Jesus, the King, his will. And it says that he's prevented from deceiving the church. This is really good news, and we'll, we'll be talking more about this in a little bit. I have to point out here that this thousand years, uh, when we come to Revelation, we can bring a whole lot of baggage 
And uh, there's a whole lot of literature that has confused and deceived, I think, the church. The thousand years is not a literal amount of time. The numbers in Revelation are symbolic, and they're full of meaning, and we should look to the rest of the Bible in order to understand them. The thousand years is a period of time. It's not an amount of time. It's referring to the time that we are in now. We are in the millennium. Jesus is reigning now. And this means that if Jesus is reigning, that Satan is restrained. That the gospel is going forth. That people can believe in Christ and come to new life in him. This is good news. It's the period of time between Christ's first and his second comings. It's the age in which we are now. Satan is not given free reign. It also means, um, as it says, that the dead in Christ are alive with Christ now because there's a first resurrection. This first resurrection is referring to that by faith in Christ, when Jesus rose from the dead, we also have risen with him. If you are a new creation in Christ, that you have uh, participated in this resurrection. There's great assurance with this. Um, It means that those that die in Christ, though physically they may be dead, they are with Christ. It also means, as it says in verse 6, that there is no danger for those who are in Christ. There's no danger of falling in the judgment. That the second death is not a danger. This is good news for us now, but there's, there's more. There's more good news. This brings us to our second point. The good news that evil will be defeated and punished. This is our reality now. Satan is still the, the prince of this world. Um, there is still evil that exists, but there's an end to it. Evil will be defeated. Verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's power is now in check. It's not as bad as it could be, but there will be a little while where there will be a last battle. Where Satan is released, he will gather armies, rise up against the church, but the church's enemies will be defeated. We all know of defeat that uh, entails basically retreat, uh, licking our wounds, and then resolving all the more to come back. Uh, This is not the kind of defeat that's at play here. It says that evil will be punished, meaning this defeat is final. 
every uh, resource that the dragon has at his disposal. Um, in earlier chapters of Revelation, there's the, this kind of unholy trinity. There's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the, the beast and the false prophet, they're already in the lake of fire. And now the dragon is cast into the lake of fire. All those who have been deceived, who have fought at the dragon's side, all of these are brought to an end, punished forever in the lake of fire. How is this good news? Why should this give us hope? I want to look at a few things as to why this should give us hope. We have hope to endure in our faith unto death because of this truth. The backdrop of the writing of the letter of Revelation uh, is, is the Apostle John on the island of Patmos imprisoned. He was persecuted. Around that time, under Roman rule, there was much persecution taking place. To be a Christian was to become an enemy of the state and to risk martyrdom. So the call in Revelation to be faithful unto death is a call to know that God will avenge all of the evil that is befalling the church, both then and now. In the Western church, we know little of this kind of desire. Uh, many of you know, I, I spent some time in this area of Bosnia, and uh, sometime around that time, I um, came into contact with or, or uh, was introduced to this theologian, Miroslav Volf, who grew up in Croatia. He's now a uh, theology professor at, at Yale. And uh, as I'm, I'm sure many of you know and maybe have memory of, in the 1990s, uh, there was uh, just a massive war taking place. Uh, many would say a, a, a genocide was taking place. And so Wolf was, was a Croatian. He actually was teaching and lecturing in the midst of this war happening. And he wrote, wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, and it's all about forgiveness. It's all about nonviolent resistance to evil. And the basis on which he, he grounds his argument might be kind of puzzling to us Westerners, especially white Westerners. I'm just going to read a, a short quote. He says that my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is the reality he had um, experienced. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, he imagines, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. 
And, it, and as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Wolf is insisting that the only way for us to love our enemies, the only way to believe in nonviolent resistance to evil is to believe in the death of Satan, in the final judgment of God on evil. Otherwise, evil wins. Let me speak to uh, my white brothers and sisters there is a lot upon us to go and talk to people in minority populations, people who are, uh, maybe have experienced depression, people from uh, Egypt, Iran, China, have experienced real persecution. Talk to them about the nature of God. Talk to them about the vengeance of God upon evil. Talk to them and hear the hope that Revelation 20 brings them. That one day there will be a final judgment on this evil, on this sin, that God does not turn a blind eye. Because of his love, he is just. We also have hope in the midst of our fight against the accusations of Satan and against temptation. Friends, if Satan is bound, then our greatest weapon is reminding him of his leash. That he is limited, that he has been crippled by Christ, and he will soon be vanquished. This word, this truth, is our greatest weapon. Our temptation to break under the pressure and give in to the idolatry of the world we live in and just say, I give up. We don't have to. We can talk back. Martin Luther has a great quote. Martin Luther uh, writes a lot about the devil, um, has some great one-liners. Uh, here, here's a, a brief quote. So when the devil throws your sins in your face, when he accuses you, when you do the confession of sin, but you don't hear the assurance of grace, the assurance of pardon, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. In other words, Jesus owned you. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. We can have hope because this is our narrative. This is the truth. We can also have hope in the midst of despair. I don't have the, the pleasure of continuing on into Revelation 21 and 22, but these two chapters of the Bible uh, have provided more comfort to me in my Christian life than any other. The end of Satan is the beginning of perfect life with God forever in his presence. And this is a sure thing that we can take hold of by faith. We can have hope, Christians, that there will one day be no evil that can separate us from God. God is doing everything in his power 
to break down every obstacle, everything that separates you from him so he can be with you forever. Jesus has been down in that pit. He knows of despair. He knows the silence of unanswered prayer. He knows the depth of that darkness that you may sometimes feel. And he came out of it. He rose up out of it. He won. He defeated every last thing that was separating us from him. This is our hope. That our God is alive. And soon, Satan will be dead. Christians, we must face these truths head on, not brush over them. They are resources, deep, deep resources for comfort, especially in the face of persecution. Skeptics, do not dismiss these truths as optional, but figure out with us. We'd love to invite you into a conversation. Anyone who you've seen up here, I'm sure would love to talk to you about the grand epic story, the true one, of the gospel, how God created us good, evil, corrupted, Christ redeems, and he will come again to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Anyone here would love to tell you more about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your victory over sin and death. We thank you that in the final chapters of the Bible, we see that death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection that we can uh, take hope and know that nothing can come in the way of being in your presence forever. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I invite those of you who have children.